I think that because technology changed, I think that at times brands might have not put as much importance around creating lasting assets and visual assets that will be here. You know, there've been a lot of great influencer campaigns, but good fucking luck finding those. Welcome back, episode 10 of The Best Money I Ever Spent, presented by Rally. We took a little break last week, but we're back with someone who really, really understands the business of hype and how trends turn into cash machines. Matt Halfhill, the founder and CEO of Nice Kicks, one of the most popular lifestyle websites and sneaker properties on the planet. Matt literally turned an $8 domain name into a multi-million dollar business during an era when that was far from the norm back in the early 2000s. And he's seen the commoditization of sneakers and the culture around sneakers firsthand. This is an episode that touches on not just sneakers and sports and the crazy sums of money and kind of trends that spill out of sneaker culture. It's about building around your passion from the ground up, which Matt has done super successfully. And as always, as a disclaimer, nothing on this episode should be considered financial advice. You shouldn't make any decision, financial, investment, trading, or otherwise, based on any of the information presented here without doing your own research. And with that, episode 10 of The Best Money I Ever Spent, presented by Rally, with one of the reasons everyone finds out what's cool before it happens, Matt Heffel. Matt, what's up, man? Thank you for joining us. Sincerely appreciated. Oh, thank you for having me. Nah, for real. So, I mean, I, I gave a little intro and I, I spoke to your background, but it really is something that... I think it has a lot of twists and turns, but it also starts in a, at a very specific time and kind of like sneaker and lifestyle culture and that that kind of mid 2000s era. You graduated uh, and it wasn't like a design degree or something that was specific to editorial or any of this. Next thing you know, your life's full of sneakers start to finish. How's that happen? Give us a little bit of that nice kicks journey early on in like those mid 2000s. Yeah. So, I mean, I graduated, um, well, shoot, before I graduated high school, I was already deep into sneakers. Um, my first job was working at a shoe store in the mall and, um, in senior year started buying and selling things on eBay of like clearance items, uh, from the store I worked at in Canada. Um, and then registered nicekicks.com a week before I graduated high school. So that was about 20 years ago. Um, but yeah, it was a really wild time to, live that life where we had the analog world and then coming into the digital world and the, especially the early internet um, times and seeing all facets of our lives live on both sides and, you know, transition at the same time. No, it's, it's unavoidable now. And you hit on a good point that, that like flipping on eBay and finding like those arbitrage opportunities early on. I feel like our, our generation, you and I are around the same age, it's that was the start of everybody's kind of like entrepreneurial career. Social media didn't really exist the way it does now. So when I look at like a nice kicks now, we're talking about, you know, 5 million followers, massive penetration in all these really important markets, you know, a top 500 lifestyle website in the United States. Social media is a big part of it now, but how much back then as that started, like the MySpace days and it started to develop, how much was social media a part of your life and kind of the creation of nice kicks at the beginning? So from day one, we were on, um, MySpace. Um, I think I looked up, we had started a YouTube channel maybe on the seventh day of, of after I put my first blog up. Um, but like what it was for us is that it wasn't the 
the medium of social media? Because again, there was no such thing as social media in 2006. It wasn't until I think 2008 that that Zuckerberg started addressing uh, started addressing investors as a social media. Before it was social networking, right. because the purpose of the tools was to connect with other people of similar interests. So what didn't change for us from you know from the very beginning, I knew that networking was wildly important. The whole reason why I was so into sneakers was because of the networking with other people of similar mindsets on uh, message boards and uh, forums. And so we took a lot of what was like the best part of the forums and the message boards and brought that over to our website. And when we launched, one of the things that we had that was very unique at the time, and what was part of the ushering in of the term Web 2.0 was that you could have an active comment section where before it used to be publications were one way. You went to a website, you got what they gave you and that was it but when we created when we had an active comment section that people could leave their feedback on and engage with others on that's where that whole like early web 2.0 uh, phrase started being used in that it was a new approach to the way publishing was done um on online yeah and that was that was such a crazy moment i'm, I'm thinking back back on it now like the nike talk forums and a few other things that popped up around sneakers and culture it was, you had to stitch it together a little bit. And you guys did a super, super good job early on of making sure that, that conversation happened. I remember like it was yesterday. But it's also one of those things where did you, did you look at it as community first and then it was going to grow into something that became a mix of commerce and news and lifestyle and, and the, the sort of stitching together the entire culture of sneakers and sports and commerce that went with it? Was the early vision bring the community together and then figure out how we monetize it later? Or was the idea of making this a business and making it into something where it could be, you know, e-com and it could be a mix of conversation. Was that always like that vision? Because now you're talking almost 20 years later and it's something that's grown into this massive force of both news, commerce, spending, sort of commoditization, all those pieces together. How far along was that vision during that, that early kind of forum and discussion type day? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that um, was to our benefit from the very beginning is that I never really put an upper limit of what anything could be, but I also never really put too many things like said, this is where we're going to go. Because sometimes I think that there is a disadvantage if you as a company say, this is where we're headed and you build this huge roadmap to where something is headed. You're like, sometimes people declare too soon where things are going to be going and they might you know, they might be committing to a plan of going where they think that, you know, they're where the hockey puck is going to. They start skating that way, but they're not necessarily taking enough inventory midway through the process of where actually are things going. Because, like, believe it or not, nobody's all knowing. And really, you're trying to time what yourself, your position, your company with the whole world who is made up of other individuals like you wanting to do their things and go their directions. Um, so like in the beginning, did I think that we would grow a large audience online? Like, yeah, that was always my dream for sure. It was always about building a large community online of people to, who like appreciated shoes to be able to get to read about them, um, hear the backstories. And I think that part of what I knew, like I had in my heart, I knew that there was a much bigger audience, much larger addressable audience um, there would be than there was at that time in 2006 when we launched the first blog. Um, I knew that it would only grow and I had a really strong feeling that like footwear, especially sneakers as a category was going to become the default for youth culture. And so like, yes, I did have that vision early on. And I thought like, and I think like really the desire to get into commerce and get into collaborations and get into other stuff that all came through the journey. 
definitely wasn't there in 06, but like, you know, part of the, part of the um, challenges that I faced introduced me to retailers. And that's where I then built relationships with retailers. And that's where I really started to get into and love learning about the business of retail and footwear. Um, it was through those relationships that I met Ronnie Feig and, you know, that then led to our first collaboration that we had done on a shoe um, and going through that whole process. So, I mean, like it was, it was kind of like some of the challenges presented the opportunities in ways that like I would learn while solving for one problem, I found something else I really loved doing. And that became something that we started like a thread we would then start to go down as a company. Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it. And I think that the the trajectory of Nice Kicks and of your journey in particular, you start to see like in those in those, you know, twenty tens era and up to now, the bigger collaborations, the Ronnie Fires, like you said, but the big brands, people that kind of, you know, were obviously part of an established relationship that don't just run around and do collaborations with anybody. But I think those are these seminal moments now. I think back then, when you're talking about like that web 2.0 to 3.0 transition, there was a lot going on in New York at like the start of Nice Nice Kicks. And there were these kind of seminal moments that I think everybody here remembers. And the big and they were like the aha moments for a lot of people, to your point, when sneaker culture just became culture and it became the culture that drove a lot of the decisions for purchasing, for friendships, for community, for so many people. For us, it's like the Pigeon Dunk is an example where in New York, it's front page of the New York Post and the Daily News. And there's like the riot and they're talking about how crazy impossible it was to get this sneaker. And it kicked off this whole other world, like into 2006 and 2007, where everybody was taking sneakers seriously. That was also the moment where it's like your mom texts you like, yo, what's up with these sneakers type of thing? You know what I mean? And that becomes like a conversation in your family. And it's bigger than just you and your friends. What were the seminal moments along the way for you, whether it's collaboration or the one thing where it was that aha moment where this is a real giant business potential. We have to keep moving forward really quickly to get these type of collaborations or these partnerships or, or be a part of this conversation. What were those seminal moments along the way? If there were one or two of them that stick out where it felt like it was going to stick forever. Um, I think that there were something that I started noticing with time was that I would, somebody would introduce me by name or I would introduce like Matt of nice kicks. And I'd start giving the elevator pitch of what we are. And I, it was like, I can't remember which NBA player or which entertainer. I, he's like, dude, you don't have to explain. I know nice kicks. I go on there all the time. And I guess I'm like, holy shit, people those go on Those are the crazy moments, yeah. definitely. Yeah, yeah those, that's where you're like, wow, okay, yeah. They, they, and, and they almost like laugh at you. Like, you think I wouldn't know about this site? <laughs> um, <laughs> and those moments are just like, yeah, in hindsight now. Um, but I mean, honestly, like that, that to me has always been kind of the coolest part of this job has been the people I've met because of it. And like the people I meet who are readers of the site or followers of social media, like one thing that hit me really hard when I was, I was in China a couple of years ago uh, for Clay Thompson tour with Anta. And we were out somewhere in Shenzhen and uh, we were just like, you know, just at a restaurant and somebody from the Anta team, like was talking with a group of kids and they had identified like that we were with Anta and whatnot. They wanted to talk with us. And they mentioned, yeah, you know, I, I saw him like talking to the kids about that, about nice kicks and like their eyes lit up. And then one of them pulled out their phone and like held up, you know, their phone with Instagram, like showing that they followed nice kicks. And that's again, great. you're not supposed to have Instagram in China, Yeah, um, but it was just that, that, re that really cool thing of like, wow, here's like, 17 or 18 year old kid all the way on the other side of the globe. And he just like, can't believe that he's crossing paths with somebody from nice kicks. And I'm there and I'm like, 
you know, 30 something years old, I'm in disbelief that here I am crossing paths with somebody who is in China who like, you know, has it on their phone. So that's crazy. Those are the best moments though, too. Like seeing, seeing regular people that you've never met before using your product or knowing your product. Those are the things you kind of need to keep going sometimes too. When there's like always going to be downtimes, but then you get somebody off the street who's just like, Oh, I love what you do. Or here's this thing, or I'm following you or something like that. Those are the moments you kind of need along the way too. Those get discounted sometimes. It's like an ego thing, but it's definitely really, really meaningful especially in another country too. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it's kind of been helpful too. I think like for us, we've been in, we've, we've spent so much of our early years and kind of on an island being in, in Austin, Texas, whereas like almost all of our other industry peers, whether it be from media or from sneakers, they're in the coastal cities or in Portland or Boston. Um, those are coastal cities. I'm talking about LA, New York, just so people don't get upset here with my geography. Uh, <laughs> But, um, you know, not a sneaker city, not a media city, um, Austin was. Um, so we were kind of disconnected from a lot of that stuff. Whereas, like, I can see, like, if, if you're in a sneakers in New York, like, sneakers are everywhere. They're all around you. There's lots of people in the business. Um, in Austin, we, we really, we were on, on our own. That's also you were you were early. I'll give you that because it's it's the case with the entire business and and this this massive business that you've built, this massive property that you've built. Austin was is a place now that everybody looks at as like startup culture and and there's fashion elements to it and there's you know big festivals. Doing it, taking that leap to put a business or make it a home base is not something that was an easy move when you guys did it up until a year ago. That was not really like something anyone would think about up until COVID really. So to put your feet down there also speaks to kind of being ahead of the curve there too, because it's, it's everything's a startup to a certain degree at the end of the day. And this is no difference. A giant startup that said doing it in Austin now makes way more sense. And the culture is so much more pervasive because of those online communities and because of the ability to kind of find what you're looking for without having to be in the major city and walk down whatever their Broadway is to find a spot. That's become so much more important now. And it does the, the Shenzhen comment really, it transcends just like the street in New York or Fairfax in California or the place that you would normally go. It's good to see it start to develop outside of those coasts for sure. The, the onto comment you made, and that's kind of a good segue. This is this, Awesome sneaker company for anyone that, that doesn't know, everyone should look it up. It's not something you find in like a, every footlocker in New York, but it's something where they have a bunch of penetration in, in leagues and in the NBA. And it's starting to become, you know, you, you're starting to see Instagram ads and stuff in the United States with these really, really unique silhouettes that they're making. Do you think that Nike is going to rule the world forever? And the Adidas is going to rule the world forever. When you look at, at now what like Kanye's done and what a few other brands have done and, and Ronnie Fye's a good example and, and Teddy Santis at New Balance where the brands that were kind of the other brands are starting to get that attention now from like big players. And they're starting to get looked at as very meaningful with all these non-sports entertainers and personalities. Do you think that it's always going to be this Nike Jordan world? Or do you think that these other brands that are on the come up right now have the ability to really, you know, dethrone these sort of Kings of the industry that have had this 20, 30, 40 year run. We've had Kings of the industry that were, that seemed like impossible to crack. You know, if you look back at history, uh, once upon a time, there were several American footwear manufacturers, uh, Converse, um, ProKeds, um, BF Goodrich with PF and Hood Rubber Company. Like they dominated the American market. Um, but then there was this, you know, in, in the 60s, um, you know, two German companies that came over, Adidas and Puma, that really shook things up. And they shook it up in, in first, like they really shook it up in basketball first when they introduced the cupsole. Um, to the space, leather upper cupsole, like that really shook things up in the basketball market that had been all canvas and um, a vulcanized rubber. Um, 
and then you know i think that something that can be said and then you know you saw how even adidas or sorry nike came in you know nike came in with with basketball first basketball shoe was introduced in 1973 and when you know before the air force one nike had a very 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 small market share in basketball but the air force one comes out that then lays the groundwork for the air jordan one and you just see how quickly they dethroned a lot of the established elites in basketball which is converse still and adidas number two um how much they took over and um I think that a really good book that I, I've actually just been reading right now um, that has a, a good parallel to that, a good parallel answer to that question is by Ray Dalio called uh, Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order, Why Nations Succeed and Fail. Um, and there's a lot to that book that I think applies to this industry as well. You can have ones of, you can have domination by really strong powers. Um, but there, there are cycles that can cause, you know, rises and falls of, of groups. But I think it's, especially if you, if you read this, the, the chapter about China, um, you will see that there's absolutely without any question in my mind that you are going to have brands from China that are going to start grabbing market share in the athletic footwear space. Um, do you think it requires like, and I'm, I'm thinking back to the transition from Air Force One to the Jordans that everybody, you know, both those sneakers are beloved. They're going to last the test of time. Those first, you know, first 11 Jordans are just going to live forever in my mind. Do you think it requires what happened in my mind with Nike, where you have Michael Jordan, this larger than life athlete, somebody who's kind of at the very beginning of their career, trying to figure out what's next in terms of a brand, but not thinking about themselves as a brand necessarily, and a tinker or somebody who's just a great designer and there's a great marriage between those two people to make something great. Is there a secret sauce to it or is it more like a cultural moment that just turns something into something huge and you can't really put your finger on it? So um, very often you hear Michael Jordan and Tinker Hatfield together saying like this was two lightning in the bottle moments. I think the third one that almost never gets mentioned, unfortunately, is Wyden Kennedy. Because <laughs> if it wasn't for the geniuses sure. behind the marketing, I don't think that we would be having the same conversation. Um, Wyden and Kennedy was able to solve for something and they were able to take shoes and get them to be of interest because they were listening to the market, watching the marketplace and seeing what was going on with hip hop and sneakers to say, hey, look, we've got to make sure we are getting ourselves in with hip hop. This is, this is a movement that's going to continue to grow. And so I think that for a brand like, you know, any other brand like we're seeing a, we've seen a quite a few times where they try to re, they try to take that Nike playbook and try to like recreate it themselves. But part of what made that playbook so fantastic was it was the first that had been done. So what it's going to take is a brand to actually not try to masterfully like mimic or copy what has been done before, but they're going to have to take they're going to have to strip things down to the root of why why like kind of assemble what were the whys then and apply that in a new way in the future. You're going to have to get the, something that is outside of shoes, outside of sports together, in addition to fantastic product, good distribution plan, and the right people to promote it. Um, and you, can, you could see success potentially with that. That was, that I, man, I'm, I am, uh, you got me. I, I don't know how I left Wyden and Kennedy out of that conversation. Those are, those are the ads that you ripped out of magazines in front of your wall when you were a kid. You know what I mean? Like they just... They captured a moment and they put steam behind that in such a way that to your point, ever, there's a lot of great designers, there's a lot of great athletes, entertainers, people with massive followings and huge communities. 
But without that push and without really packaging up that message correctly, it never, ever works. And that was a perfect example of like execution on all three of those fronts. No question. That, that kind of brings me to where we are right now in the market. And this is sports, sneakers, culture. I look at something like the, the first Virgil Abloh releases with Nike, the 10, those first collections that started with the Jordan 1. And that was this crazy, crazy moment in sneaker culture where it was, it, for a lot of people, Virgil was kind of a regular person they hadn't heard of before that. Somebody that obviously in, in music and fashion and culture was very, very well known, but still wasn't on a global scale at that point to a lot of people. And he wasn't on a lot of people's radars. Sneaker prices were bonkers and resale was crazy. And it still is pretty crazy on those particular examples of those early Virgil releases. We're in a little bit of a kind of a pullback of all assets right now. And there's a little bit more inventory than there was maybe six months ago, let's say. What do you think the next catalyst for, for that, for, for price in terms of this commoditization of sneakers, whether you're for or against it, it is kind of an asset class at this point. Do you mm -hmm. see, you know, private equity or funds sort of getting involved in that gray market or that secondary market? Or do you think this is still going to be something that starts with that eBay flip and then evolves based on whatever the market dimensions are at that point with kids? Do you think that there's a future where this is looked at and traded the same way any commodity is? There's a potential. Um, I think that the short answer is to this is that there, there's going to need to be some market cleanup um, soon. I think there's, there's too much valuation across the board. There's, and I think that there are some strong, strong, strong like investments in, in the space um, that will, with that, will like stand on their own and, um, and survive. But I think that right now there's been across the board overvaluation on some uh, on on a lot of the assets um so i think that what you're going to see is you're going to see a market pullback just like we're seeing in, in like in the stock market just like we're seeing in the crypto space or just in like we're seeing in a lot of them um there's going to be a pullback there's going to be some things that you know die or don't don't really survive in terms of it but the ones that survive are going to be the ones that they survived for the very reason because they were supposed to to begin with hmm. those are those were the ones I mean, I think of like the the shattered backboard game, Jordan 1. I mean, you talk about any Jordan 1 out there that I would want to own. That is the one. It, really? You know, like very few, for me, it's, it's, it's either that. It's, it's that one. It's the first time he wore it. The, the, the dunk contest and the time he broke his foot. Or in the 63 point. Like that's those, those that's five a, I've right never heard anyone say huge. that. That was it. That's crazy. Because like, you know, and maybe the, there'd be some other ones, like maybe the ones he wore on set when he did the Jumpman pose or yeah. like there'd be some other from different moments, but from like exhibition game and, and NBA games, those were such important moments, not just to the shoe, but to the legacy of Jordan. And those are the ones that to me are, are like the most important and valuable. Yeah, we have, we have the, at Rally, we have the, the shattered backboard jersey. And it's something that to me was just this, aha moment but i think to you know showing it to my girlfriend or, or people who don't necessarily follow sports it doesn't have that same thing but there are such specific jordan moments that i feel like relate back to the sneaker and back to the jersey or back to a specific moment in time and like a like childhood nostalgia i've never heard anyone say that those are the five though I, i'll give you that one because that's the most unique answer i would have heard to like what jordan you want and that's almost like some people will bring up like airships and they'll bring up some very specific sort of early career moments but uh, you're not wrong. That's a very seminal moment in the Jordan career arc, too, and the story arc that goes with it. The, yeah. Do you think that, you know, and we're talking about this as like an asset, as an investment, and we're talking about the numbers and money that goes along with sneakers. Resale market overall, 
thinking about everything that's happened and, and bots and, you know, what Supreme turning into, you know, this massive corporation at this point, all the elements that support this ecosystem of the secondary market that goes along with sneaker culture, net positive or negative kind of where we are in the curve right now? What are your thoughts? Mm, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to say. Um, it, it, it also depends on who you're asking and what are they using for metrics on net positive or negative. Hmm. Uh, in terms of do total dollars spent, it's net positive, clearly. Um, in terms of sustainable adoption um, by passionate consumers, I'm not sure on that one, to be honest. I am, I'm of the opinion that we have prevented more people from becoming 20-year sneaker fans in the past five years by making it too difficult for them to purchase shoes. I think a lot of people, and then beyond the difficulty, I, I, I'm openly critical of brands that they let conversation get much too loud about the resale of their products. And it's like, it's no fault of their own that products are reselling for more than they price them for. I get it. That's not your fault. But it is your responsibility to make sure that you are doing enough of a job storytelling and being louder than the conversation around the resale of those goods. And I feel like they have not done enough to get the story. Like you talked about, remember how I talked about Wyden and Kennedy? All around my office, you asked, like, am I in a gallery? So all around my office, I have original posters and um, adverts and POP from what I think were some of the best times in terms of visual storytelling in, in footwear history. And I, of course, listen, we're not picking up magazines, right? Anymore, like, you know, they put so many adverts in I, there. I still but do. We, I feel like I still need that sometimes, yeah. but I hear your point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, so, but I, I think that because technology changed, I think that at times brands might have not put as much importance around creating lasting assets and visual assets that will be here. You know, there have been a lot of great influencer campaigns, but good fucking luck finding those unless somebody recorded them Dude. and saved them on a hard drive. A lot of the, <laughs> a lot of the marketing that's gone on is it just disappears and there's no there's nothing to go for. Like we have a we have an account on Instagram called Nice Kicks Vault. And we see this cliff that happens at about like the 2011 mark where we're like, what, what do we have to work with? Unless we use a way back machine or there are <laughs> photos of people in public with the product, like we just don't have assets to work with. But it is, the, that was the golden era for so much. And I think that like that early 2000 to me is such an important time in advertising and sneakers and culture and fashion and kind of community building before Instagram really existed for anyone that, that hasn't been on the nice kicks vault Instagram. It's like a, it's a perfect time capsule with the, the perfect hint of nostalgia and kind of current conversation because everything is cyclical and comes back around. But you made a really great point too, in that it it is that's part of the commoditization and part of kind of why I want to talk to you and why why I want to sort of have this conversation with you. You've been very vocal about it. And you've done it in a really meaningful way where it's not running around like you know starting trying to start a fight with Nike. But when I look at like a Rolex, for example, who isn't shipping new watches to authorized dealers and is kind of benefiting from the secondary market that exists right now, where it's impossible to get, but that's a price point where it's a little more tenable for their core clientele. For sneakers, the idea of like, if I'm a kid, can I get a pair of Jordans type of thing? When I was a kid, you couldn't afford the Jordans anyway at 120 bucks. But even now, right. it's completely out of whack with you know perception of what those brands are, which is mostly dictated by social media and access to those brands to the people that care about it most. 
Do you think it, do you think Nike likes it like this? Do you think Adidas kind of likes it like this when there's a really limited one-off release that nobody can get? Or do you think it's just a it's a it's an issue with the market that's really uncontrollable right now? I think that at a time they liked it. I mean, I know that Adidas was really happy when you had big lineups for like Yeezy yeah, for and Yeezys. seeing like, you know, a thousand people gather outside of a store. But I remember saying to some of my friends at Adidas then, like, guys, this is cool. I'm I hope you're happy for this moment. Like, congratulations. But like I look at that crowd and I see a hundred people, like hundreds of people who are striking out and they're only going to come out so many times before they just stop going. And you, you have the potential to lose this customer. You've done all this work to build the opportunity to start a relationship with them. Um, But if that relate, that relationship could end before it starts, if they, you know, how many times is somebody going to strike out before they move on to the next thing? Because they're, you know, it's not like if they don't get them here, they have to go somewhere else and pay resale. No, they just won't do it. Yeah. Or they'll get into something else. And it's not like it slides between Nike and Adidas. Like people can get into something digital. They can get into like, oh, I'll get a new laptop. Oh, I'll do something else with my time. So that's like, that's the other thing that um, I think brands have to be very cautious of is, is knowing that you, if you create a reason for people to fall in love with something else, they will. Um, I will say in recent times, something that I've been happy to see, A, I've seen brands really step up and make put in much better bot protection for their platform. Yeah. Step one, right? Step two, this is just the, the market taking care of itself. I'm seeing that resale is starting to come down on a lot of, a lot of products, a lot of categories. Um, it's, it's great for us. We're part of our, part of our um, business is affiliate marketing. And we were, you know, we, could, we had such a hard time producing revenue from that vertical because as we were sending links to our audience, they were fighting bots to get the shoes, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, but we're seeing now that actual real customers are making up more and more of those transactions versus bots and resellers. So um, that's a good thing as, as the market has started to soften a little bit on the resale um, demand is it's allowing real customers to get shoes at retail um, for the first time in a long time. Yeah, you hit you hit on probably the most important point. I think you made a lot of great points during this whole conversation. But one of the most important points is that everybody, all of us, no matter what your business is at this point, if you're selling anything, you're in an attention fight. And if you if somebody sort of you know tries two, three, four, six times, can't get what they want, there's a good chance their attention is going to get sucked up somewhere else, and you're going to lose that customer and lose that fandom, which is bigger than anything else. The ability to sort of develop that customer over time and turn them into someone who's really loyal and creates that flywheel and has that conversation for you with all their friends. Now you have somebody saying like, you know, fuck Adidas or fuck Nike. Like it becomes a different conversation when you do wrong by them, you know, multiple times in a row and then see somebody on eBay or somebody on Instagram with 700 boxes from a release that nobody could get that are about to flood, you know, one of the secondary markets. So it's a really, really good point. And it definitely shouldn't be lost in, in the idea of commoditization of all these pieces. But that said, at the end of these, these conversations, we'd like to have like two or three kind of quick questions. And I got a couple mm-hmm. for you that I want to sort of throw at you and, and get any off the top of your head kind of answer. The first of which, which you probably have a lot of opinions on is what's the most important sneaker design in history, do you think? It hasn't been made yet. Ooh, that's the right. I thought you were going to, that's the right answer, dude. I was going to bring up the fact that people were playing basketball in Chuck Taylors, which is still the craziest thing to me <laughs> on earth. But that's a good answer. Hasn't been made yet. The second one, so, you know, a lot of conversation around StockX and authentication and kind of the things that they're doing wrong lately. Do you think this is sort of a pervasive industry problem where there needs to be more safeguards in place? Or do you think it's like a one company, maybe not doing enough type of problem? Um, 
it's hard to say that I think that part of what part of the problem that we're seeing with this is that the actual nature of authentication is it's only there because we don't have a better solution at this point. Right now, the, the whole reason why we have third party authentication, which is like, listen, when you consider all the different types of e-commerce we have, this is the most inefficient way to do business. The idea that a customer purchases a product, the seller then ships it to someplace to then have a human open it all the while, like between seller and authentication center problems can happen and they do. Um, the human then takes it out. It inspects it where there's human error, potential human handling error, you know, all kinds of things that can go wrong there, puts it back in the box where then it gets another leg of transit to, to the uh, end user, right? Where again, more problems can happen, including leaving it on the doorstep where a thing gets stolen. Um, that you contrast that to Amazon Prime, where you make the order and I have this thing before I wake up the next morning. Like you couldn't get a more black and white comparison. The reason why we have to do this third-party authentication, A, is because the fakes are so effing good right now. So good. That, like, I mean, my son tells me all the time, like, all of his friends, like, they're like, they're like yeah, we, they have no problem wearing reps. They buy reps like, now. It's called something else. Reps. It was called it's, fake when I was a kid. You know what I mean? Well, well, here's the thing that's also bad about it. This is a, a, indicative of a greater problem. Why is it easier for a kid who's in middle school to buy a pair of reps than it is to get a pair of shoes on a drop? That's the right question. That's the right question. You asked but, it, you asked yeah. answer it, right? But then, um, but sorry, but going back to this, the whole issue is, is around the authentication and the lack of trust. Um, I think that technologies that are emerging right now, especially in Web3 and, um, and blockchain and what we have on our devices, our phones with NFC readers, um, we could verify authenticity of these products ourselves if the brand's Im embedded chips in the product. And that would remove the need to have to go through a third party to verify. You could have people have trust transactions between each other and they can verify with their phone whether or not this thing is real. Not just that, it could even see what's been the chain of custody and command of these, of these products. Like chain of custody, where, where did you buy it from? How, you know, like as a seller, it's like you got to show where you got this. Yeah, it does, it, does, it does feel like we're at that point where the solution has caught up to the problem. It's just a matter of who executes yeah. it first, right? I, I, if I were to put a bet on it, I believe it's going to be Nike on this. Just based that, on That's a I've pretty safe it. bet. It feels like it feels like you follow the money. It's a pretty it, safe bet that Nike would do it first. Yeah. Yeah. Beyond, beyond some info that I've seen as well as, as well as uh, patent applications, like I'm, I'm going to bet on Nike having this one. Um, but I think that it, it will be, that will be a huge um, change in the business once that, once that rolls out. Massive, massive. Then last question. I think I might know the answer to this, but what's the best money you ever spent? Oh, man. Um, the best money I ever spent, uh, two answers. Can I give two? Am I allowed to? You're allowed to. It was a great conversation. I'll, I'll give you two. To. I'll give you yeah. two. All right. Okay. So I spent $8 to buy nicekicks.com. Crazy. Um, so I, yeah, this is, I gave my mom, because I didn't have a credit card. I was 17 years old. I gave my mom the eight bucks to buy the domain name. A couple of days later, I gave her some more money so I could buy a hosting plan to start building the website. Um, that was like, and that was June 8th, 2002. So right at 20 years ago. Um, second, but I, I honestly think the best, the best, best was $15 when I was in the sixth grade. I bought raffle tickets for myself. Um, and I was like gambling, you might say, on like what I could possibly win in the school, like fundraising thing. And one of the things that was up for grabs 
And everybody first thought I won this. They thought I won a six pack of bagels from Uncle Harold, Uncle Harold's <laughs> bagel race. And then I found out that I didn't win the bagels. I instead won a gift certificate to this place called, I think, Discovery Center, which was a tutoring and testing um, place in Fresno, California. And I was on the I was on the cusp of not being able to make it to the accelerated middle school in the Fresno Unified System. And the they identified that my I think it was my math scores were never an issue, but my English scores were not good. Um, and I took I like they helped me study so that I could retake that test and I got into that school. And that is such a huge huge fork in the road for my life because that middle school was not in you know a nice part of Fresno this was in it was part of a program where they did they put it in a different area of town where I was able to get immersed in many cultures that I didn't see in my neck of the woods in Fresno in northwest Fresno you know this was out in west side southwest Fresno um, and that fed then into the Edison High School which was again this was a this was a social experiment that or education experiment rather uh when it was started where they put an accelerated program in a school that had been shut down for poor academic performance you know most cities at that time i think it was in the late 70s early 80s what they did was they took the kids that were from the hood and they would they would have them take buses to other yeah disperse all over, all over town yeah, whatever, disper- yeah. yeah. So they, they said, well, let's they had the experiment of let's flip it on its head. Let's take the kids who have accept, who have tested into the accelerated program track and we'll bust them in. So they're going to come down here and we'll see what happens. I mean, we had classes that were, you know, that you would test in, but then all of our electives, all of our sports, all of our, you know, community, like social programs, those were all open to everybody. And so like I was immersed in a culture I would not have gotten the opportunity to connect with if I had been in the, in the suburbs. That's a great and answer. So that, man. Yeah. So that $15, man, that's the best, by far the best money. That's a, that's a great answer. And it's, you know, to bring a full circle, it's one of those things like seeing new things, meeting new people, being a part of, of, of new conversations is what births some of the greatest things and the greatest businesses and people and relationships you could possibly have. You turned into something massive. So with that, Matt, thank you, brother. I really appreciate it. We'll speak soon. I'm sure hopefully have you here in New York. But really, thank you. I really appreciate you uh, for joining us today, man. Oh, thank you. Thanks, brother. That was episode 10 of The Best Money I Ever Spent. Matt's a real one. He's not one of those people who kind of puts himself in front of the camera a ton or tries to find the spotlight or does a million different interviews and speaking engagements. He's just someone who really understands what people want. He matched it with the things that he really cares about. And he found a way to turn that into a massive business, which is something that you know we've always tried to do here at Rally with everything we put on the platform, matching up passions to equity. So I was super excited that he was down to come on and talk about that journey. This week on Rally, we've got some really cool stuff lined up for NFT NYC. We'll be on site at the Cool Cats NFT pop-up, Cooltopia, which is at Center 415 on Fifth Avenue here in New York City. It's a massive activation that you absolutely need to check out if you're here. It's gonna be all over Instagram and TikTok for sure. We've actually got some of the original drawings that turned into the Cool Cats that were designed and illustrated by Klon, the founder of Cool Cats, from way back when he was known as a cartoonist and he was an illustrator. And those drawings will be on site at Cooltopia and available in the app as an initial offering starting this week. 
Finally, as a reminder, do not listen to me or anyone for investment advice. Always do your own research and be sure to read the disclaimer on rallyroad.com before making any investment on Rally. All investments involve risk. This is no different. Past performance is never an indication of future performance. I'm Rob Petrozo. I'll be back next week. Until then, you can find us on rallyroad.com, rallyrd.com, at rally on Instagram, and at onrallyrd on Twitter. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss anything in between.